Last night, actually early this morning, as I was putting the finishing touches on my notes for this sermon, my wife gave me some encouragement and said, you know, Mark, nobody will remember what you say anyway. She said, really, all they remember are the songs. So I have put my sermon in a song that I will now sing to you. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak but he is strong. (laughs) Japheth says I need to fill out some time for the online audience. So I will continue. Last week I told a story about my father catching some friends and me doing some unsabbath activities on the Sabbath while we were celebrating my 12th birthday party. My father told me this week he does not remember that at all. My sister and sole surviving sibling does not remember it either and convinced my parents that the parents with whom she grew up would never have done something like that, and that I probably made up the story. Just another reason why I should be written out of the will. We have been told that proclaiming the truth is costly. But it's my birthday, I can lie if I want to. So I'm going to tell some stories today about my father in honor of Father's Day and stories that make him look a little bit nicer. Over the last couple weeks, we have been talking about the gospel and what it is not. Tom Eichmann started out two weeks ago by talking about it is not about health. Now, health is a very, very good thing. I think all of us would agree with that. We want to be healthy. But a preoccupation with your health is a very unhealthy thing. Last week, I talked about the Sabbath, and in touching on the Sabbath, also on the law, the law of God. The Sabbath is a good thing. The law of God is a good thing. I don't think any of us would disagree with that. But a preoccupation with the Sabbath or a preoccupation with the law makes us self-satisfied, self-centered judges and petty spies and legalists. Today I'm going to talk about how the Sabbath is not about salvation. Now, some of you will probably disagree with me. In fact, there are some great proof texts that prove that I am incorrect in making that statement. Uh, 
One of those comes from Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Ephesians 1.13 says that ye have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also you have believed and were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Ellen White also talks about the gospel of salvation. In Councils on Health, it says, the gospel of salvation must be proclaimed to others. And in a little book that most of us have not seen, A Call to Medical Evangelism and Health Education, she says, the first and chief object of the gospel and all that pertains to it is to seek and to save that which is lost. So how can I possibly stand up here and say the gospel is not about salvation? Well, what is salvation? In the Daily Walk, I talked about how the word salvation and the word heal both come from the Greek word sozo, and they are really interchangeable almost all the way through the New Testament. You can use heal instead of save, and that uh, healing instead of salvation is what it is talking about. And when we look at what our problems are, quite often it is a problem of us being out of health in our relationship with God and that we need that healing. But as we look at what salvation might be, one of the things is salvation is helping us to escape from hell. Everybody wants to escape from hell. The view of hell that many Christians have comes from some early writings. One of those was the Apocalypse of Peter that was written very early, in around the hundreds, early hundreds A.D., very soon after the last of the apostles had died. It is an pseudepigraphical book, which means it is not written by the one that it is claimed to be written by, and it talks about hell. It paints a very terrible picture of hell, about people being held over the fire and having flames of fire in their mouth, about rolling on sharp stones that are burning them, being hung by their hair or by their tongue over this, this lake of fire because they were lying or because they had been adulterers. Most of us are more acquainted with Dante's version of hell in his, in his uh, the part of his book called The Inferno, where he has a, a trip through hell, a supposed trip through hell in the nine circles of hell. And in each circle of hell, as you get closer to the, to the internal part of hell where Satan is, things get worse and worse. And he goes through a vivid description about all of the painful things that people are going through. Interestingly enough, and I had forgotten this, when you finally get to where Satan is, it's not hot. It's actually a frozen part of hell where Satan lives. But these views of hell that had been written by some of the early, early church writers were very, very common in the day of the Reformers. And as the Reformers read the Bible and as they came to the belief that they had a, a hope in 
righteousness by faith in Jesus and, and of hope in getting away from the works and the penance and the, and the indulgences that the, that the church had been, had been pushing to help people be saved, they continued to have that view of hell. And so as they looked at salvation and they looked at what God could do for them, one of their foci, the area that they were really concerned about, was staying out of hell. And so the good news to them was the fact that they were not going to have to go to hell. Now, we Adventists do not have a view of hell where it lasts forever and ever and ever. We have what I have called a veggie hell. Our hell is truncated, it's shorter, and it is only as long as you deserve that you are punished. I would entertain that that may actually be a worse view of hell than the one that most Catholics and other Protestants have. And let me explain to you why that might be. One of the reasons that they believe that people's last in hell forever and ever is that they believe that the soul cannot die. And if the soul cannot die and it cannot go to heaven, it has to go to some place of punishment and it lasts forever and ever because the soul cannot die. We as Adventists have a different view. We believe in the mortality of the soul, that actually the soul can die when it is separated from God. If that is true, and if, as we have been taught, some people last longer in hell than others, that means that God is keeping them alive to make sure they get their punishment. At least that's one way of looking at it. Which actually paints a worse picture of the character of God, I believe, than the fact that his hands are tied with an immortal soul and there's nothing he can do about it. What is the good news about salvation? Is it that we escape hell, that we escape that torment, that we escape that damnation? Or are there other things about salvation that may be more pleasant? And so we as Adventist kids have learned a lot about heaven and the beautiful place we are going to have in heaven. Daniel told us about the, the beautiful mansions that God is building for us and the beautiful place we will live and the, the fact that we will always be happy um, as C.S. Lewis says, it is, it's always Christmas and never winter or something like that, where it's always happiness and never cold. <clears throat> Much of the world also believes that, that actually what happens is, and it's very dangerous to try to describe somebody else's belief, but there is a large group of people in the world that almost believe that nirvana is where you finally get to a point of almost nothingness. And it's different whether you're Buddhist or Hindu as to exactly what you believe, but, but the, the goal for all of them is that you finally get off of this wheel of reincarnation and you finally have rest, whether it's in nothingness or whether it's a place of, 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 of warmth and, and a feeling of goodness. But everybody is trying to look at what happens next and, and how do we be saved and what is that salvation going to mean and what's in it for me? 
That should be a red flag. What's in it for me? A focus on salvation, a preoccupation with salvation may actually be a very selfish attitude. They killed the infants and the children first. Some of the mothers brought them up willingly and handed them over to the medical staff. Others had to be forced to be separated from their children. But the father, their God, felt that this was psychologically the best way to deal with it because if the children were killed first, the parents and others would be more likely to follow. Thus, 918 followers of Jim Jones in Guyana in November of 1978 committed suicide or were killed by his security guards. He had led them to believe that the CIA or some other government agency was coming to kill them anyway, so it would be better for them to do it ahead of time where they had more control over how they died. There have been many gods throughout the history of the world that have required similar sacrifices from their followers. One of the gods that Solomon worshipped in his period of apostasy was the god Moloch. Moloch was an iron god in which they built a fire, and in the hands of Moloch they would place their infant children and burn them in the hands of Moloch as a sacrifice to the god Moloch. If the children survived, it meant that Moloch was blessing them, and if they died of their injuries, it meant that they were cursed. In the Bible, there's also a story about the Israelites attacking, sieging a city where they are surrounding this city. It is clear that they are about to take this city. And the king of the city brings his son up onto the wall of the city and in, in front of everybody, all of the Israelites and all of his people, sacrifices his firstborn son to his God. This actually bothers the Israelites so much, they are so dismayed by watching this, that they leave. The sacrifice must have worked, right? So part of salvation has to do with who is the God with whom we are going to be living for eternity? Is it a God like Moloch? Is it a God that requires the sacrifice of our children? Or is it a God like Sauron, the Lord of Mordor in the Lord of the Rings, or possibly even like the supreme leader Snoke in the Star Wars movies? Maybe it's even someone like Kristoff, the manipulative and controlling creator and executive producer in the movie The Truman Show. But who is the God with whom we are going to live? I would propose that if it is any of those gods, living with them for eternity is going to be more like hell than like salvation. Who is the God of salvation? The only thing that makes salvation good 
is if it's better than the alternatives. And that completely depends upon the character of God. Even if God is good, and salvation is a wonderful thing, as I said earlier, if we're preoccupied with being saved, that savors of selfishness. Ellen White says in Gospel Workers, anxiety and worryment in his service, talking about our fears and doubts as to whether we will be saved, savors of selfishness and unbelief. God also had a couple friends in the Bible that valued salvation less than some other things in their lives. The text that we used in the daily walk this week, one of them talks about the story of Moses. You might remember Moses and the children of Israel were camped around the, the Mount Sinai. Moses went up into the mountains with Joshua and was being given the law the Ten Commandments, and the other laws that God wanted for his people. And after a period of time, the children of Israel convinced Aaron that Moses must be dead. He had been gone too long. He had no food. He had no water. He and Joshua must be dead. They then must return to Egypt, and one of the things they must do is worship the God of Egypt. And so they built the golden calf. You remember that story. And they are dancing around the golden calf. They are in a fertility cult ritual and doing things that were absolutely forbidden for the Israelites to do. And God turns to Moses and said, you need to go down. The children are worshiping false gods. And he says, actually step aside and let me destroy them. You can view that two ways. One, you can view that God is a God of destruction. One, you can view that God was testing Moses. I believe it's the latter. And Moses turned to God and said, God, you can't destroy the people. First of all, it would wreck your reputation. What would the Israel, what would the Egyptians say that you brought your children out into the middle of the desert you couldn't save them, and so you had to destroy them. He basically told God, this would go against your character. This would tell something about you that is not true. He then went on to say, God, if you must destroy somebody, take my life, take my salvation, take my eternal salvation, but save the people. This was a very Christ-like thing that Moses did. He said, I am more concerned about the people, about my people, the ones you have given me to lead, than I am about my own salvation, about my goodness, about the things that are going to be good for me. The very same thing that Christ did, where he came and he died for the people. The other story we find in the New Testament, and this is the story of, of Paul, where Paul is talking about in the book of Romans, he, he talks about first the Gentiles and the terrible things that they have done because of their separation from God or their lack of having God in their lives. He then talks about the children of Israel, the Israelites, the Jewish nation, and how they have, have twisted the law and twisted their understanding of the character of God to such a degree that they also are not living in union with God. And then he talks about how 
the character of God is so important and how the love of God is so important that there is nothing, nothing that has ever been created that can separate us from the love of God, that, that the God the Father is on our side, God the Holy Spirit is on our side, Jesus Christ is on our side. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. And he says, I wish I could get my fellow kinsmen, my fellow Jews, to understand this. In fact, I would be willing to give up my salvation if it would save my people. Again, a very Christ-like thing to do. Again, focusing not on his being saved, but on the healing of the people, about the, the sozo, the fact that there is healing and salvation that is available, which tells me that if they were willing to give up salvation, there was something more important in their lives than salvation for themselves. Their focus was not that preoccupation with what's in it for me. The preoccupation was on salvation for those that they loved, those that they cared for, even though the people did not really care for them very much. The summer of my sophomore year in college, I worked at Cedar Falls Junior Camp in Southern California. I was a lifeguard, one of the easiest jobs I ever had, except all summer long, I had strep throat and tonsillitis. When I was in medical school, I could walk through a pediatric clinic and catch a cold. Kids are little infectious petri dishes. You have to be careful around them. And working in summer camp, I had a strep throat. I had a sore throat all summer long. Several times, a friend of mine, his father, who was a, a, a family practice doctor, would give me shots of penicillin. I'd get better for a while and then it would come back again. Finally, I got out of summer camp. I was at home with my parents, and I got strep throat again. And one afternoon, I believe it was a Sabbath afternoon, I was feeling miserable. I took a pill, a penicillin pill, and I got into the bathtub to rest, try to feel better. As I sat in the bathtub, I began to have some very strange feelings. The first was that my skin started to itch all over. I began to scratch, and I, the more I scratched, the more I itched, and it felt miserable. As that progressed, I noticed that it was getting harder and harder to breathe. Now, I have always been in love with breathing. And as I felt this sensation that I couldn't breathe, I began to get worried. I got out of the bathtub, put my robe on, went out to the living room where my father was taking a nap. I woke him up and I said, Dad, I just don't feel good. I'm itching all over. I'm having a hard time getting my breath. My father looked at me and actually as I recall, and he may recall it differently, he picked me up, carried me out to the car, told my mother to call the hospital emergency department. We were coming in that I was in what is called anaphylactic shock. I had had a reaction, an allergic reaction to the penicillin that I had taken. 
We drove to the emergency department. We got into the emergency department since my father was a, a physician there at the hospital. Sorry about this. We didn't have to wait in line. We went straight in. There were three or four physicians around who began to help work on me. They got me on oxygen. They got an IV in. They gave me epinephrine and Benadryl. And they worked their hardest to try to save me because this is truly a life-threatening problem. In fact, as I was lying there on the gurney, one doctor who shall be unnamed kept saying, he could die from this. He could die from this. Bedside manner is something that we do not teach physicians quite as well as perhaps we should. I didn't die from that, spoiler alert, but it reminded me that my father would do anything to save me, to heal me, to make sure I was okay. Even if it meant, and I was almost 20 years old, carrying me to the car, rushing me to the hospital, making sure I was cared for. This, to me, is what salvation is all about. It's a fatherly figure, our heavenly father, who cares so much about us that salvation is almost a byproduct of a relationship that he wants to have with us. So what is the gospel? If the gospel is not about health, it's not about the Sabbath and the law, it's not about salvation, what is the gospel? All of those are good news, but I still am claiming it is not the good news. You would expect probably that in the books of the gospels you would find the gospel described. Not so much. The Gospels talk a lot about healing, they talk about the kingdom of heaven, they talk about God, uh, Christ coming to, to reveal the Father to us, but they don't talk much about or they don't describe or define the Gospel. You have to really turn to Paul for that. And Paul, in both the book of Romans and the book of Galatians, focuses on his view of the Gospel. And he says in in 1 Corinthians, he describes what the gospel is, and then in Romans and Galatians, he focuses more on it. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 3, he says, the gospel is Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That's great news for all of us are sinners and all of us need to be saved from sin. But if you stop right there, it can almost fall back into that self-centeredness that Christ died for my sins according to the gospel or according to the scriptures so that I can be saved. But Paul goes on and talks a little bit more about the gospel. He says there is no other gospel than this. He says if anybody tries to tell you there is another gospel, let him be damned to hell. Now you may not know that the Bible says that. It uses the Greek word, words anathema esto, but in many of the translations, it is damned to hell, which is really what the word means. We've softened it because we don't like to be so cruel. Let me read to you Galatians 1, 8 and 9 through, from the uh, Good News translation. But even if an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel that is different from the one that we have preached to you, may he be condemned to hell. We have said it before, and now I say it again. 
If anyone preaches to you a gospel that is different from the one you accepted, may he be condemned to hell. Anathema esto. Paul goes on to say, I got this gospel straight from Christ. I did not get this from the other apostles, from Peter and John and James. I got this gospel straight from, the, from, from Christ. He said, I did go to headquarters. I did go to the general conference to check it, to make sure it was orthodox, what I was preaching. And they agreed that it was. He said, while I was there, however, there was a battle between the the Liberty Party and the Circumcision Party. In fact, when I went there to have the gospel checked, I took my friend Titus with me. And the Circumcision Party put together a subcommittee to, to investigate, to see if Titus was circumcised. How would you like to be on that committee? Talk about petty spies seeking out other people's liberty. He says, then he goes on to say, I actually had to rebuke one of the apostles because he was not living up to this gospel. I had to correct Peter in public and to his face because when he was by himself, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when the circumcision party came up from Jerusalem, he separated from the Gentiles and would not eat with them. And I had to correct him and tell him, you are not living up to the gospel of freedom. He then goes on, one of my favorite verses, Galatians 3, 1 to 4. He says, oh, you stupid Galatians. How long will you go back to the works of the law? How long will you be tempted to go back away from the gospel, the good news that brings freedom and liberty to you? How long will you be tempted to go back to the works of the law, to those things that says, eat this, don't eat that, keep this day, don't keep that day, do this, don't do that. He says, the gospel brings you freedom. It brings you liberty. And then one of my other favorite verses in Galatians, he said, I wish those members of the circumcision party would slip with a knife and castrate themselves. You may not have read that verse because in the King James Version, it doesn't talk quite so vividly. But Galatians 5.12, in uh, particularly the more modern versions, talk about how he wishes they would make eunuchs of themselves, he wishes they would castrate themselves, that the knife would slip if they're so focused on this work of the law. So let me challenge Paul and say there is another gospel beside the one that says, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. It's not a different gospel, but it adds on to the gospel. Now, all of you good Adventists are sitting there worried. What am I talking about? This sounds like heresy. We cannot add to the Bible. In John chapter 17, 4, Christ says, before he even went out and died, he says, I have finished the work you gave me to do. I have revealed your character. I have glorified your name on the earth. If you go to John 12, 32, he also says, when I am lifted up on the cross, I will draw all unto me. 
Now again, in the King James Version, it says, I will draw all men unto me. But if you look at that word men, it is italicized. It has been added. If you go back to the original Greek, it says, I will add, I will draw all unto me. In Colossians, Paul says that when Christ died, he not only brought peace to this world, he brought peace to the universe, that he brought peace to heaven. This gets back to our Seventh-day Adventist unique belief about the great controversy. And let me read you something from Desire of Ages, because I think this is very important as we talk about salvation and the gospel. Ellen White says on page 758 of the Desire of Ages, to the angels and the unfallen worlds, the cry on the cross, it is finished, had deep significance. It was for them, the angels and the unfallen worlds, as well as for us, that the great work of redemption had been accomplished, not until the death of Christ was, was the character of Satan clearly revealed. The arch-apostate had so clothed himself with deception that even the holy beings had not understood his principles. They had not clearly seen the nature of his rebellion. What Ellen White is saying here and what Paul is saying in Colossians and what Christ was saying about being on the cross was, I came not just to save human beings. I came not just to make sure that you humans were safe. I have come to make secure the universe. The angels and the unfallen beings are just as dependent on my death on the cross as are you sinners. It expands the gospel. The gospel is not just that Jesus died for us sinners. Jesus died for the universe to answer the questions that Satan had raised about the character of God. That, I believe, is the good news. That is the gospel, that God has had his character vindicated to the universe through what Christ did in his life and death here on earth. When I was about five years old, my father took me to the hospital with him. He was working on his residency, and at this time he took me to visit. He was working part-time at White Memorial Hospital. That's where I did my internship, so I know the hospital well. It's in a part of Los Angeles that is not known for being a very safe part of Los Angeles. It's in East Los Angeles. It's a very dangerous place. In fact, there are a lot of gang warfare around there, and it is not a safe place to be. Even when I was five years old, which was 91 years ago, it was not a safe place to be. It had been a good visit, however. I was already happy because the nurses had told my father how cute I was. So I was happy. We walked out of the emergency department, and we were walking along the sidewalk towards where he had parked his car when a gentleman approached us asking for some money. I don't remember whether my father gave him anything or not, but I do remember that after the gentleman left, my father told me, that somebody recently had been robbed close to there and had had their wallet stolen. I don't know what made me think this, but as he told me that story, 
I turned to him and I said, Dad, actually I probably said, Daddy, if somebody came up to you with a gun and asked for either your wallet or for me, what would you do? Without a hesitation, he said, I'd give them my wallet. You are worth much more to me than my wallet. Now, I knew money was very important. I knew that wallets were very important. And this is probably the first time in my life where I felt a sense of worth, that my father valued me more than money and a wallet. He, I'm sure, has forgotten that story, but it continues to resonate with me because he loved me not for anything I could do for him, not for anything I could give him. He loved me for who I was. This is what God wants from us. He wants unconditional love and trust for his own sake, for his character's sake, because we've learned to know who he is and have learned to love him. Not because of what he can do for us. He can save us, he can give us eternity, he can make us rich, he can do all sorts of things. But every person in this world and God wants to be loved for who we are, not for what we can contribute or give to somebody else. We want to know that we are loved. We want to know that we have a relationship with somebody just because of who we are. Ellen White says in Christ's Object Lessons, she says, the gospel invitation is to be given to the whole world. The last message of warning and mercy is to lighten the whole earth with its glory. She then goes on to say on page 415, the, lay, the rays of this merciful light, this last message of mercy, is a revelation of the character of love. What we are here to do is to spread the gospel to the world, the gospel. Health is great. It is not the gospel. The Sabbath is great. It is not the gospel. Salvation is a gift that God has for us, but it is not the gospel. The gospel is all about who God is, the character of God, that God is not the person Satan has claimed he is. He is exactly like his son, Jesus, who came to reveal to us and to the universe the true character of God. And I would close by saying that I have been charged by someone that all I preach is love, love, love. Well, going back to something Tom Eichmann told us, the transitive properties of mathematics. If God is love, and all I'm preaching or we are preaching is love, then all we are preaching is God. I can live with that. And the gospel, the gospel, 
is such that even if an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel different than the one I preach to you today, anathema esto. We have said before, and I say it again, if anyone preaches a gospel that's different than the one I preach today, may he be anathema esto. <laughs>